Well, happy Father's Day, if that applies to you. Glad that you're here this morning. Go ahead and turn, please, to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. It's a very familiar text, um, one that most people can quote. Most of you can quote at least close to what it says. It's a text that we've recited probably many times over the course of our lives in church. And many times we may have done this reciting of it with our minds and our hearts disconnected from what it really means and what it says. Disconnected from our lips and what's coming out of our mouths. We're going to be looking at scripture concerning prayer and specifically what the Lord taught his disciples concerning pray, how he taught them to pray. My hope is that as we go through this text, we'll be encouraged together through the word of God to draw near to God with sincere hearts as we seek him. We seek him through prayer Not just here in this place, but in our lives. I'm going to read uh, for us the entire section on prayer, which is verses 1 through 13. This week we'll look at verses 1 through 4. Next week we'll pick up at verse 5 and finish the section. And so if you would stand with me, Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask... And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? If you then... Who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, dependent upon you for your grace, that your word would not just reach our ears, but that it would reach our hearts. That you would help us, Lord. We want to be doers of the word. And Lord, we pray that you would shape us, build us up, encourage us, convict us. You know every heart here. You know what we need. So please, Lord, use your word to bring that into our hearts. That you be glorified through us as your people, we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. What begins here in chapter 11, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. You may have recognized this is something we're getting used to in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen that this is something the disciples are quite familiar with. They have seen Jesus pray often. Luke has made it a point to show us how important the practice of prayer is for Jesus. The Son of God in fellowship with Father God. And often, we see this as a theme in Luke's gospel account, often praying, going and finding a desolate place to pray. In fact, just up to this point in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3 verse 21, Jesus is praying at his baptism as the heavens are opened and the Spirit descends on him as a dove. Luke five sixteen, Jesus, it says, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, verse 12, before choosing the 12 apostles, it says Jesus goes to the mountain and prays all night long. Luke chapter 9, verse 18, Jesus is praying alone before asking the disciples who the crowds say that he is. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, Jesus goes up the mountain with uh, Peter and James and John, the Mount of Transfiguration. And before he is transfigured before them, it says he is praying. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, Jesus prays, thanking God, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, thanking God the Father in the Holy Spirit for concealing from some and revealing to others. So we see this pattern in the life of Jesus, and certainly this is something that the disciples saw as a pattern in his life, something that he desired and something he delighted in. Prayer was not a burden for Jesus. He delighted in prayer. And after Jesus finishes praying here in verse 1, one of the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples to pray. At this time, religious leaders would teach their disciples prayer. Often a prayer. A prayer that would form them, that would shape them, that would identify them. And so this disciple asked Jesus, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. So we know that John taught his disciples how to pray. And now these disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, teach us. It's likely that the disciples saw something unique in the way that the Lord prayed. Remember, uh, as, as Jesus begins his ministry, and specifically in the Gospel of Mark, it's so beautiful. As he goes from place to place and he teaches, remember the response of the people? They were astounded because they never heard teaching like that, right? We've never heard anything like this. Teaching with such authority, they would say. And likewise, we can imagine that Jesus praying, the Son of God, praying to his Father. They must have noticed something unique, something different in how he prayed. And what they had seen their whole lives in the Pharisees, in the religious leaders that they had seen pray, that they had been taught by to pray. Something's different in that. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about the Pharisees and the religious leaders, how they would pray and heap up empty phrases, thinking that they would be heard for their many words. But that's not how Jesus is praying. This is his father. There's a relationship here. 
And they likely saw that there was something lacking in the way that they themselves prayed compared to how Jesus prayed. And so, teach us, Lord. Teach us how to pray. Jesus responds by giving them what we know as the Lord's Prayer in the following verses, verses 2 through 4. And I want to mention a couple of things before we get to those verses and we get to the prayer itself. First is this, we should probably refer to this not as the Lord's Prayer, but as the disciples' prayer. It is what the Lord taught them to pray, right? But it's not what he himself would pray. The Lord Jesus did not need to pray, forgive me or forgive us our sins, right? This is a prayer that he taught to the disciples for them, for us to pray. And secondly, this is a prayer that can be prayed privately. And certainly we ought to pray this way privately. We see examples of of individual private prayer in the text, right? Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is Jesus, the individual, the person Jesus praying to his father. And then the example that he gives in verses 5 and following, that's a very individual example. A man goes to his friend. This is the picture we're getting of prayer. So there's a very individual aspect, and certainly we're called and ought to pray like this. We should be concerned with things as individuals that are, that are given to us in this prayer. But we also want to see and, and notice that this is, uh, this is a corporate prayer. Right? All the pronouns are plural. Right? You see that? Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. We for ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. So there's a very corporate aspect of it. And we'll talk about that some as we go throughout. But just contemplate that for a moment. What would it look like? What would it be like if we were a people, cornerstone, we were a people that, that thought corporately as we prayed? That we pray things like this as a body, but even as we, even as we, as Jesus talks about going into your closet and praying, even as we come before the Lord individually, that we wouldn't be mindless of the body of Christ. What would it be like and what would it look like if we thought corporately in prayer so that we're literally genuinely praying things like, lead us, your body, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us, give us. How would that change our mindset, our thinking, and even our love for each other as we come together? And so we don't want to miss on the fact that this is a corporate prayer, not just individual prayer. But verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, and he gives us the prayer. When you pray, say, he's saying to them, say this, pray this. When you pray, say, Father. He wants us to pray this prayer. The question is, are we going to be obedient Now, it's incredibly important how we obey, right? It's important how we obey the Lord's commands. Because we could read this and we could see Jesus himself, the Son of God, says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And then we could, off we go, right? We go home and we're going to memorize this thing. 
We're going to get it in the head. We're going to get it there so that it just comes right out of our lips. We know those awkward times in service where this prayer comes up on the screen. And we know it one way and some people know it another way. And so it just comes out the wrong way. No, no, no. Jesus said pray this. We're going home. We're memorizing this. We're never going to get this wrong again. And we're going to recite this for the rest of our days. But if we did that and it didn't have any heart meaning whatsoever, we're no different than the lawyer in chapter 10 who answered Jesus' question the right way but his, his heart is totally disconnected. That's not the right way to obey. Certainly Jesus is not just wanting us to memorize and recite this. In fact, Jesus addresses that in Matthew 6, 5 through 8, where he warns against just mechanically reciting prayers. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand before people in the marketplace. They love to be heard for their long, drawn-out prayers. That's that mentality. I'm just going to memorize and learn these words, and I'm going to recite them, and people are going to think, man, this guy has got it. This woman is holy. Jesus warns against that, and so he's certainly not intending this to be something that we just memorize and then recite without feeling or believing. There's heart intentionality here that Jesus is leading us to. When you pray, say this. And so with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus is leading us to pray. And remember that he says, when you pray, say this. So he intends us to use this prayer. And maybe you've grown up in a church context that used this over and over and over and over again. You've said this prayer thousands of times. And so for you, it was so dry. It was so meaningless. It was just, it was just something you did as a part of the service. And your heart was never connected to it. And you hear this, you hear it recited or you're told to recite it. And it's just like lead on your heart. It's just a stone. It's just a weight that it it means nothing. If that's you, if that's been your past and and the Lord's prayer for you is just just kind of rote memorization, then, then lean in and pay attention to what he means. What is he leading us to pray so that we together can pray rightly, obediently, with hearts engaged in love with God? When you pray, he says, Say, Father, Father. Now just think about that for a moment. Today's Father's Day. If I were to go around and ask you, tell me about your father. We'd get a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? Some of you, you hear Father's Day and you think Hero Day. I mean, my father, you would think, could do no wrong you were the kid and the grown-up that was like my dad could beat up your dad my dad's faster than your dad my dad's taller better whatever than your dad i mean for you father's day is hero day he was always there he was the loudest supporter at the games he was in the yard preparing me for the games he was he was dad he was my father and and thoughts for you of father is just your heart just swells for some of you you don't think that way father's day for you is is painful your relationship with your father was 
was not good. You don't think hero, you think hurt. For some of you, you, you think Father's Day and you think who? You, you didn't know your father. He wasn't there for you. I want to encourage you, whatever your thoughts are about your earthly father, they're, they're not true about our heavenly father. If you had the best father on the planet, you think Father's Day and you think Hero Day. God is far greater than that. Far better than that. Far more loving, far more faithful than that. If you think Father and you think brokenness and you, you feel the weight of that brokenness, don't impose that on God the Father. His loving kindness never ceases. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that he lavished, lavished, just think of that word, lavished his grace upon us. Whatever your thoughts are of your earthly father, we don't want to impose those on God, even if they're good. Because God is far greater He's far better. And the Lord Jesus, when he is asked, teach us to pray. His first word is an invitation to call God Father. He's inviting us. You just think about that. Inviting us, bidding us to pray and to address God, the creator and sustainer of all things. The judge of the living and the dead. Those who have lived and whoever will live. To approach him and call him Father. He's inviting us. Inviting us to approach him. Inviting us into an intimacy that he had with his Father. Now think about that. What was the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Or what is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son like? Closer than anything we could ever imagine in this world. And Jesus is bidding us, inviting us. When you pray, pray, Father, Father. Jesus taught his followers to think of God that way. As he thought of God, Father. It's a relational word. It's a word of intimacy. We have a relationship with God. He is our Father. We are sinners. We're sinners. First John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. If you say that you're without sin, you're what? Go ahead and say it. A liar. We've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet... Somehow, in Christ, Jesus bids us, when you pray, pray, Father. It's remarkable. It's relational. Wonderful. Just as Jesus could look to heaven and have every hope and without fear calling on his Father, we are hidden in Christ 
And we approach him having the same assurance. When you pray, pray, Father. The fact that he is our father doesn't just bring hope as we look upward to him, but as we consider what, he, what it means when he looks downward upon us. Think again, it's Father's Day. And dads, as you think of your children, think about those moments, those seconds where you got it right. I mean, just be truthful, right? We, are, we, we fail as fathers. We are prone to be critical. We are prone to, in our best days, we're prone to sin, okay? But think of the seconds. Think of the moments when it was just, we were doing it right. We were fathers the right way. Think of those moments. And what did you feel about your children? What do you think? How do you love those children in those moments. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus at his baptism, the heavens open and the voice of God the Father speaks, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And here we are hidden in Christ. And those words are true of us. Not because of anything that we've done, because He's lavished His grace upon us. He is a loving Father, not a Father that we need to fear and run away from when we sin, a Father that we run too, because he will never forsake us. He will never reject us. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons, as sons. And so we don't even have to doubt that when we come before him, he sees us holy, blameless son. With you, I am well pleased. What a remarkable thing. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Set apart be your name. You're holy, Lord. God is holy. He is set apart. He is unique. He's other from us. And God being our father doesn't mean we don't revere him. We don't stand in awe of him. God himself says in Malachi 1 verse 6, If then I am a father, where is my honor? Where is the honor due me? Those things are not in contention. They're not opposed to each other. Yes, he is absolutely our father and he is holy. He's set apart. We're in awe of you, God. We revere you. We stand before you in awe and wonder. You're holy, our Father, hallowed be your name. Paul writes in 1 Timothy six fifteen through 18, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, 
who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That is the God that Jesus is inviting us to pray to. Just that that phrase, you alone have immortality. Apart from you, we're gone. Everything other than you, God, exists because you make it exist. You keep it existing. You keep it alive. That's God. And Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Set apart, holy be your name. And that's not just his title. Name doesn't just mean what we call him. It doesn't just refer to uh, his, his um, title. It means his whole being, his whole person. God is holy. And so it's not just concerned with uh, how we say or what we say about God. And it, it certainly does incorporate that. It does involve that. But it's our attitude towards God. And all that he is, you, Father, are holy. Holy is your name. Holy are you. Set apart in all of your ways. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What does it mean when we pray that? We've probably prayed that so many times in our lives when we've grown up in the church. Part of the Lord's prayer this is over and over again, we've prayed, your kingdom come. What does that mean? What does it mean for us to pray? We've seen in, in this gospel account, in all of the gospel accounts, Jesus is, is preaching the kingdom and he's bringing the kingdom. But what does it mean for us to say to God, your kingdom come? Is it just an eschatological word, like in times thing, that we're just kind of looking ahead and hoping that the ahead is not so far ahead, that we're praying, Lord, right now, come, Lord Jesus, now come to this earth, fulfill your kingdom now? Well, certainly partly that is definitely involved in what we're praying, Lord, your kingdom come, come, Lord Jesus. But it's not only that. What about the now? What about the already aspect of the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought into our hearts? What does it mean for us to pray your kingdom come? When we pray your kingdom come, we're saying to God that we want his values to permeate our hearts and our lives and our neighborhoods and this world. We want what you want. We want your values. We want your reign here and now. We value, or at least we want to value, what you value, God. So let your values come and help us to embrace them and let them permeate us. We ought to ask ourselves, is Jesus the king of my life? You think of kingdom, you think of king, right? You have a king and you have his realm, his kingdom. We ought to ask ourselves, is Jesus the king of my heart? Is he the king of my living? And then definitely, this is also a prayer desiring that his kingdom will finally and fully come, which happens when Jesus returns in all of his glory and sets up his kingdom here on this earth certainly it's a prayer for that 
And so we ought to ask ourselves, do, do I want his values now? Do I want the fulfillment of the kingdom now, finally and fully? Before the fulfillment of my own kingdom? Do I want his kingdom now? Or do I have a list? These things that once this is come Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come then. Let me graduate. Let me get a real job. Let me, let me get married. As soon as I'm married, Lord, then. Let me have children, Lord. We just know what it's like to have kids. Your word says I'm not going to get to be married or have kids in heaven. So please, Lord, please, 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 let me know what that is like. Lord, please let the kids get out of the house. Like, let it just, (laughs) once we get then and we can experience again the joys of earth, then come, Lord Jesus. We have those lists, right? Can we pray from our hearts, your kingdom come now your values now in my heart your kingdom come set up here on earth now we want the fulfillment now lord verse three give us each day our daily bread this is tough isn't it give us each day our daily bread most of us pray a prayer of thanks before we eat a meal But I would ask you, do we really feel as if we're dependent upon the Lord for our daily bread? I mean, how many of us ever wake up in the morning in our hearts thinking, Lord, please. We're absolutely dependent on you today. Please provide. Please give us our daily bread. Truly, even when things are tight, we depend on our paycheck. We depend on Walmart or Kroger or Whole Foods if you're doing it right, right? (laughs) Right? We We don't even think Lord, we're dependent on you for this. We know we're just going to walk in and it's going to be so nicely wrapped in plastic and they spin it around, they put the nice tie on it and it's cut way better than I can slice it. It's just there. We just know it's there. So I just go in and I can grab one, two, three bags. It's just there. Now for these people that the Lord wrote to, yeah, I get that. They needed to pray this because this is a big deal, right? I mean, the grain has to be threshed. They gotta go through this whole laborious process to make bread. They don't have microwaves. They don't have those things you put on your counter and you just put all this stuff in and it mixes it up and then all of a sudden there's bread, bread maker. We'll call it a bread maker. Right? They have to do stuff, they have to work for this. So for them, yes, Lord, give us each day our daily bread. But what about for us? Shouldn't we consider that it's the Lord who provides even our jobs? It's the Lord that provides everything for us. Without him, we have nothing. It's the Lord who gives you every slice of bread that you ever eat. Paul wrote to Timothy 
In 1 Timothy 6, to the rich, he says, say this, don't set your hope on riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Whatever we have, it's from God. It's from Him. We're absolutely dependent upon Him for everything. Even this breath. Give us each day our daily bread. This part of this prayer is absolutely intended for you and for me. We are absolutely dependent. We don't always act like it. We don't even pretend like it. We don't even think about it, but it's true. We are absolutely dependent upon the Lord. And it's so helpful in that it shows us that we are the ones that are dependent. It's not God being dependent on us. He's not dependent upon Walmart not going under for us to have bread. We're dependent on Him. And we pray, we ought to pray believing that, acknowledging, God, it's, it's you. Give us, give us each day our daily bread. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Now, we want to remember that this is a prayer intended for disciples, those who are followers of Jesus, those who have been forgiven. Saved by God's grace. And so this is not meaning here in this prayer, the initial repentance from sin, but this ongoing desire for fellowship with the Father. Our sin breaks fellowship. We're forgiven. Ephesians 1 verse 4 is absolutely true. We're holy and blameless before Him. But, Lord, I don't want to grieve Your Spirit. I don't want to quench your spirit. I don't want fellowship to be broken between me and you. And my sin has broken our fellowship. Forgive us our sins. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is continual desire for rightness in our relationship with God. So we continue to repent. We continue to Repent. Not just say words. Lord, I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to do it again. But repenting, turning. Forgive us, Lord. You're holy. You're holy. And this is not. So forgive us our sins. For, he says, we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now that, you may read that and think, whoa, that seems conditional. I mean, you go back to Matthew 6, go ahead and turn there. And just as you're turning there, these are two separate accounts of Jesus teaching how to pray, right? Matthew chapter 6, or 5 through 7, Jesus is preaching this sermon on the mount, uh, preaching to a mass of people. Luke chapter um, 11, this is Jesus responding to, to someone who's asking him. The prayers obviously are not identical, but that's uh, clearly showing us that this is something Jesus taught. This is something he wanted us to do. Luke, or Matthew chapter 6, as you get to uh, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for... 
Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And we read that and we're like, whoa, I'm in trouble. This seems very conditional. And I, in my flesh, do not meet that condition. What do we do with that? Well, the truth is that this is conditional, but the condition is granted. You have, by God's grace, been given a new heart, a heart of flesh, so that you can love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so that you are able to love your neighbor as yourself. Pre-Christ, before God, you cannot do that. You look at the commandments, love God and love others, and you are helpless and hopeless. God intervenes, gives his spirit to you by his grace, and awakens you and enables you for the first time in your life to love him. And then to love others. So this is very much what Paul is saying in Colossians 3.13. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. It's the picture we have in Luke chapter 18 of the unforgiving servant. That one who owed this great debt and was going to be put into prison. And he begs, he implores that this debt would be forgiven. Man has mercy on him, forgives him this great, massive debt. What's he do? He runs off. He finds someone that that owes him just a small amount. And he begins to choke him and tell him, pay me back what you owe me. And he says, "I, I don't have it. Please, please have mercy. But he doesn't show him mercy, right? He he hands him over to the torturers. Jesus in that account is giving us a picture of how could we? How could we not forgive? As those who are born again, we've been forgiven all of our trespasses, all of our sins washed away, enabled now by the Holy Spirit to love Him and to love others. How could we not forgive? We're a people now who desire to display Him, to show off what Jesus is like, even as we do forgive other people, just as He's forgiven us. I love Leon Morris on this verse as you think of this corporately as a a people who are praying this together. He says, forgiveness springs from God's grace, not from merit. And so it's us together praying since even sinful people like us forgive, we can confidently appeal to a merciful God. If even we can forgive each other, Lord, and we are then we are confident in your grace towards us. Lastly, he leads them, teaches them, and lead us not into temptation. Help us, Lord. Again, this is a prayer of dependence. Help us, Lord. Lord, certainly we know we are going to be tempted today. I'm going to be tempted today to delight in things other than you. Temptation is going to come, Lord. There are going to be idols that present themselves again to me. Help. Help me to delight in you, Lord. 
Lead me not into temptation. Help us. Temptations to sin are going to come. Lead us away from them, Lord. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Lord, help us. Lead us not into temptation. When temptation presents itself, when Satan comes and and I'm tempted to fear, I'm tempted to despair, I'm tempted to grumble, I'm tempted to lust, I'm tempted to steal, I'm tempted to lie, I'm tempted to delight in myself more than I delight in you, I'm tempted towards security in money rather than security in Christ. When I'm tempted in those things, Lord, be my treasure. Be my delight. Be what I put my hope and trust in. Lead us not into temptation. You think of this as we consider this as a corporate prayer. What would it be like if we, even individually, prayed this for each other? Lord, today, help us. Help us as your body, your people who you've set apart to be holy. Would you lead us, your people, not into temptation today? Protect us and help us to delight in you and to image you to this world. I'm going to ask you, are you praying? Are you a person of prayer? Are you a Are you a praying person? And prayer is a unique, interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, if we're just honest, right? We come here week in and week out. We can come and sometimes, you know, I have have this benefit of, I get here like one of the first few guys that get here early on Sundays. There's like five of us normally that arrive before or at seven o'clock. And so we don't have to fight with our families, I mean, it's not why we do it, okay? But it's a benefit, right? There's no like, it's just like, so I'm, I don't have to deal with what I'm about to tell you, but sometimes you come and you've just had it out with your family. You've been harsh with the kids. You've been a jerk to your wife or to your husband, You haven't thought one second about coming into the presence of the Lord. It's just been rough. But the temptation then is to come in and to sing. Not for the glory of God, but for the glory of me. Because if I sing out, then people around me are going to, they're going to notice like the Lord's kind of blessed me with a good voice. I should be up there. And he must be really holy to sing that loud. Or she must be really, really spiritual just to to sing out like that or to lift her hands or to do these things that she's doing. And in our hearts, that's our desire. Or we may come and serve. And if we're honest, there's times that we serve because we want to be noticed by people as holy people, not because we want to please and honor God. 
But prayer is a very wonderful, unique thing. Not, not, not so much as it's corporate, because certainly we can pray in front of people for that same purpose. We want to be noticed. Jesus says that in Matthew 6, right? We want to be noticed by how good we pray. But privately, that's not the case, right? People don't tend to go, as Jesus says, into their prayer closet because they want to be noticed by other people. It's, it's really seldom that someone, and it's really hard to imagine someone going into their prayer closet with wrong motives. It's just coming before God. And that's why, honestly, when my prayer is waning, I ought to be concerned about my own heart. What's the purpose of what I'm doing in my life? If I'm not coming before the Lord privately, those times where, where I'm not looking for attention... I just want to be with God. Then I ought to be concerned. And, and, and I, I, you know, just to tell you from my heart, I'm so grateful for Scott's sermon last week. I was so blessed by it. I mean, I was so encouraged and helped by it as I listened in the midst of this week. But I would encourage you along with him, just as he said, I don't want you to think of this as we talk about prayer as something you have to do. This is not something that we talk about prayer and it's like, oh man, okay, well, there you go. I've got to add one more thing to do my to-do list. This, that's not how we think about prayer. It's exactly what he asked last week. What am I missing out on when I don't pray? And the answer is the same as what he gave. It's my portion. My portion. I'm missing out on the Lord. I mean, you just think about what Jesus gives us in this text. I get to come to the creator of the world as my father. I get to enjoy his company. That's a get to, not a have to. I get to pray. I get to come into the presence of God because of Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage us to evaluate, even as we, even as we look through this Again, throughout this week, as we talk about it in our life groups, am I desiring this? Is this something I'm looking forward to in my heart? And, and even as we pray this corporately for one another, would we be a people who desire to be in the presence of the Lord? We have fellowship with Him in this. We're going to go into a time where we fellowship with the Lord through the Lord's Supper. As we do, I want us to consider this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. As we, as we hold the bread in our hands, the cup in our hands, as we prepare our hearts, we remember that it's Jesus. Jesus is our daily bread. He is our sustenance. He's our life. We continue together to partake of him through the Lord's Supper. It's why we do this. It's this opportunity to fellowship with him together in obedience to his commands to us, to take the bread and take the cup. He's our sustenance. And even as we talked about with the corporate aspect of this prayer and how religious leaders would give uh, their disciples prayers to pray, the Lord's Prayer is really a prayer that forms a people. You think through what it says. This is who we are. This is our identity. We're a people who call you Father. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. 
We are blessed to be sons of the Most High God. This is our identity. We're dependent on you. We desire your kingdom. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Really, it's a prayer that forms us, gives us shape. And in the same way, the Lord's Supper, right? The bread and the cup, it's something that forms us as a people. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. As often as you do this, you, y'all, right? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That gives form to us. That gives shape to us. And so even as we hold the bread and the cup, we remember that we're a people who are humble and dependent on God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We praise you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every morning. Where would we be without your son, Father? Where would we be without your love, without your grace? Father, help us, I pray, as we sing, as we contemplate the truths of the gospel that are displayed in taking the bread and the cup, your body, Lord Jesus, that was broken for us, your blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, would you help us? Help us to not do this in an unworthy manner. Help our hearts to be engaged, to believe as we together proclaim your death until you come. And I would just pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Even as we partake of your body and blood, Lord, fellowshipping, as Paul says, with you in this, would you let your values become our values now here that we would embrace them in our hearts, that we would embrace them as a people, that they would infiltrate us and that they would infiltrate our neighborhoods and they would infiltrate this world, Lord. And ultimately, we pray, come, make things right and new. We pray in Christ's name, amen.